You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. Bubbles there. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's denying Call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great couple of weeks. I feel like I've been celebrating birthdays and socializing nonstop, and I'm very grateful for what I'm hoping will be a very quiet weekend. I don't know if you can tell by my voice, but it's not been a quiet week, so a quiet weekend would be ideal. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, that's right, I finally got my butt into a movie theater, we've got Bullet Train. Now, if you're a Rotten Tomatoes person and you saw that it didn't get the best reviews in the world, didn't get bad, didn't get great reviews, don't don't listen to the reviews on this one. They they're wrong. Bullet Train was so much fun, though admittedly the first 20 minutes, they're okay. But once that's over and you kind of just get like settled into this movie, it is so much fun. Brad Pitt, gotta say, needs to do more comedy. His comedic timing is just top notch. I don't know anything about I know it's based on a book. I don't know the source material. So I can't speak to the quality or, you know, the how loyal it is to the source material. But y'all, I have not had that much fun in a theater since I saw House of Gucci, though admittedly that one was fun because it was so cringy bad. This was just regular old fun. So yeah, bullet chain, big thumbs up. All right, new month, new theme. For August, we are going back to our roots and covering the brief histories of four of the largest European film exporters. This is the time of year I seemingly like to whip out the old film textbooks and get into some nitty gritty stuff. This week, we're covering French cinema, probably the most influential European market, and if not, then the most consistently prevalent film market in the world, at least from Europe. Today, we will cover the film history of the country that boasts the largest amount of movie theaters per capita from its earliest days to its major movements, some of the key players, and we're starting all the way back in 1895, and we're just rocketing through all the way up to modern day. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. If you are a regular listener of this podcast, and if you are, thank you so much. But if you are, then you may remember that the birth of French cinema, and frankly a good chunk of cinema as a whole, is thanks to the Lumiere brothers. And before we get started, apologies for the pronunciations in advance I practiced. My tongue does not like French words for whatever reason. I took Spanish and American Sign Language in school, which is less than no help here or for frankly next week's country. So I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best. Anyway, here we go. 
August and Louis invented the cinematograph in the early to mid-1890s, debuting their invention in Paris on December 28, 1895, and were ultimately credited with hosting the first paying movie audience. As you'll discover next week, however, that's actually not the case. But anyway... During this exhibition, their 50-second short film, Train Pulling Into a Station, as it was called in the UK, became the film by which many film historians consider the birth of cinema as a whole. This is why the Lumieres and their technological advances with their camera and their projector get the majority of the credit that they do, despite the fact that they weren't really the first to do much. The success of the Lumiere's exhibition was like dropping a pebble into water, and the way it rippled out just changed the world forever. After they took their films around the world, showcasing what they achieved, the French cinema market just boomed. In those early days, four major production companies emerged. The Lumieres, of course, and Pathé Foray, the Gaumont Film Company, and finally the George Millier Company. Millier, whom we will cover in detail in the future, he's a fascinating man, is considered by many to be the father of the fiction film and invented many of the cinematic techniques that are still used in film today. He is also arguably the father of the modern sci-fi film thanks to his 1902 short, Journey to the Moon. Millier would remain a trailblazer in early film until the regulation of the medium began to take shape, which Millier refused to adapt to. In a fit of rage over the way he'd basically been discarded and forgotten by the community he'd helped create, Millier burnt the negatives to many of his films, losing hundreds of his works to the ages. Within 10 years of the first public exhibition of film, Pathé Foray would become the dominant film company, not just in France, but in the entire world, a mantle it held from 1904 to 1911. This was bolted by the company's purchasing of the Lumiere Tech in 1902, when the brothers decided to get out of the industry to do other things. For more about the Lumieres, I did an episode of them back in January of this year. I forgot to look up the date. I think it was like the second week of January. Anyway, it was also in France that the industry saw the emergence of the first female director in Alice Guy Blanche, the former assistant of Léon Gaumont, whom founded, yep, Gaumont Film Company after witnessing the Lumière's exhibition in December of 1895. Guy would direct over 400 films for Gaumont before continuing her career in the United States. Guy is also credited with being the person to create the modern sense of narrative films and is rarely afforded her place in film history, more than likely because she was a woman and they didn't like giving women credit for things back then. Speaking of Gaumont, in 1907, the film company owned and operated the biggest movie studio in the world and was a big part of creating the boom in construction of, quote, luxury cinemas. And by 1914, cinema became a major threat to live theater in the country of France. Then, of course, came World War One, which decimated Europe after it broke out in 1914. During the war, due to a film stock shortage, the French government placed an embargo on commercial filmmaking. As a result, unsurprisingly, France lost its ranking as the number one distributor of films in the world to the United States. American films could be sold more cheaply than European productions, and also Europe wasn't making a lot of movies, and they could do them for cheap because they'd already made the money back when they played them in the United States. So this is just like bonus money. And since films were silent at this time, super easy to just jump in and dominate a market. 
After World War I ended in 1919, 1920s French cinema would see an influx of avant-garde filmmakers who would revitalize the country's fledgling film market. This lot was inspired by Dadaism and surrealist art movements, and the films coming out of this era were known as the French Impressionist era, and they started experimenting with like camera and editing techniques to find new ways to tell their stories. From this era come the use of close-ups, POV shots, flashback sequences, and using certain editing methods to instill symbolism. The shining example from this movement and the hardest one you'll have locating is 1927's Napoleon, a six-hour silent epic directed by Abel Gauss. Napoleon was meant to be part of a seven-film series directed by Gauss, but only Napoleon was ever made. Napoleon has only very rarely been shown in public in recent decades. Last time I checked, there was not a full version of it easily available anywhere. But according to Wikipedia and some other sources, Netflix is supposed to be releasing a nearly fully restored version of the film next year. It got delayed because of the pandemic. So keep an eye out for that. I certainly will be. And, uh, you know, not everything was full-length six-hour movies. A short film from this era that is scarred in my brain, and frankly, probably most everyone who went to film school, came in the form of 1929's Un Chien Andalou, which was a collaboration between Spanish filmmaker working in France, Luis Bonuel, and artist Salvador Dali. This is the one that if you're familiar with film at all, it's the one that's just like the Freudian nightmare images. And it's the one that that pretty much kicks off with a woman's eye being sliced open by a razor blade. It's got like dead horses and pianos or donkeys or whatever the hell they are. It's weird. You can find it on YouTube. It's everywhere. It's just, you know, I warned you. It's weird. It's it's art for art's sake. It's it's yeah, it's it is what it is. I try not to like dunk on things, especially things that are very prevalent in film history. But I I've the the eye slicing thing, even though, you know, it's fake has never been too far from my subconscious. If you need any more convincing, Roger Ebert once referred to this film as the most famous short film of all time. Another trend that came out of the late silent era in France was the historical drama, the most notable of this probably being The Passion of Joan of Arc from 1928. Directed by Carl Theodore Dreyer, the film covers the trial and subsequent execution of Joan of Arc and is easily one of the most uncomfortable films you'll ever see. Again, this was another one I saw in film school and I was crawling out of my seat the entire time. It's a great one to study because of like the close-ups that they use. It makes it feel like so startlingly intimate and like you start feeling like, oh God, am I Joan of Arc? It's actually real. That one I really like. If you're going to watch anything from this, jo- Passion of Joan of Arc fit is, would be my pick. Despite all of these innovations and breakthroughs, however, France still couldn't regain the influence they'd had over the world film market as Hollywood at this time was becoming, well, Hollywood. This led to France and several other countries enacting a quota on foreign films, especially after their country's film studios began to go belly up. France installed an import quota of one to seven, meaning for every seven foreign films imported to France, one French film had to be produced and shown in French cinemas. By 1929, as you can probably remember, sound pictures were well on their way to becoming the industry standard. Like every film market the world over, this led to a huge switch up both in front of and behind the camera. In France, many former theater directors and actors entered the medium, and for a good long while, recording performances of plays to be shown in movie theaters was quite common. Like Hollywood, this would be a pretty fruitful decade for French film, despite the growing political upheavals happening in the countries on their northeastern and southern borders, as 
well as within its own walls, as the unfulfilled promises of the nation's ruling government led to a very frustrated and disillusioned public. Sound briefly allowed the French market at this time to gain an upper hand as the beginning of the Tower of Babel-esque world of talking film meant that if people in France wanted to see films in their own native tongue, they would have to go see a French-produced film. That was, of course, until dubbing technologies were perfected in 1932, and then never mind. Oh, and Paramount was also actively producing French films in the country for several years around this time until financial woes from the Great Depression forced them to stop. With the growing social and political unrest coming from seemingly everywhere, it should come as no surprise that people wanted some escapist entertainment, but not too uplifting ones because, well, France. The poetic realism movement emerged, though it's not as major an event or movement as ones we'll cover in a bit or ones that we've covered previously. Poetic realism was more characterized by its fantastical storytelling about individuals on the fringes of society. The kind of way these films went was that, like... The main character or characters have been like disappointed and screwed over their whole lives. But then they have this one final chance at love or something similar. But at the end of the day, they're ultimately disappointed. Oftentimes, the films would end with like disillusionment or death, and the overall tone would be both nihilistic yet nostalgic. These films are high in aesthetics, low in production value, but due to this new generation of by and large talented artists, they still managed to churn out a series of highly influential films. This included 1935's Bandera, directed by Julien de Vouvier, and La Regle du Jeu, directed by Jean Renoir, which was a satire about the French class system and is to this day considered a staple of French cinema. The main criticism of films of this time is that by and large they avoided the social issues of the day, opting instead to focus on the daily personal struggles of someone in French society, though Renoir kind of broke this cycle with La Regle du Jeu. In 1937, Renoir would also direct The Grand Illusion, which has also become a huge staple of French cinema. Again, another one I watched in film school. These films were not really big commercially in their day, but the movement would have a significant impact on later film movements, mostly Italian neorealism, which we'll cover coming up, and the French New Wave. In the 18 years between 1920 and 1938, French cinema had increased threefold and made up about 20% of the world's box office. While this was still a far fall from what they'd been before World War I, progress was progress. Then, of course, came World War II. World War II broke out in September of 1939, bringing commercial French cinema to pretty much a complete standstill, especially after Paris fell to Nazi Germany in June 1940. The Nazis were weirdly very aware of like media and how important it was for France to go on making its own films. And the studios were actually soon were, sh were actually reopened, with Germany providing a stimulus to the industry by founding the company Continental Films, which was under German control. Film directors and writers were given a weirdly surprising surprising amount of freedom, allowing some to find subtle ways to express their anti-Nazi sentiments in their films. Continental employed some of France's most distinguished filmmakers that had not fled the country and produced 30 full-length films between 1941 and 1944. Notable ones from this are um, 1943's La Corbeau and 1943's La Main des Diables. France was liberated by the Allies in 1944, but due to another film stock shortage and an additional electricity shortage for good measure, filmmaking was, unsurprisingly, 
not really happening in France right at that moment. That year, the country only released about 20 films, the least it had ever had. Several more years of struggle ensued, but 1946 saw the beginning of the industry's turnaround. Two majorly successful films, Jean Dreville's La Cage à Rosignols and La Enfance du Paradis, the biggest Marcel Carnet film, were released. This was also the year that saw the release of Jean Cousteau's La Belle et la Bête, or as you will likely know it, Beauty and the Beast, which became one of the most influential French films of all time. 1946 also marked the first Festival de Cannes, which has become one of, if not the, world's leading film festival, and also saw the foundation of the Centre National de la Cinématographie, or CNC, which was created with the goals of preserving the work of the original French French filmmakers while supporting the filmmakers of the future. But with the good came the bad. As part of the 1946 Blum-Burns Agreement between France and America, which forgave some of the debt France owed the United States because of World War II, French cinemas were required to screen significantly more Hollywood pictures, effectively ending the previous embargo. French films would be solely shown just 16 weeks out of the year, leaving Hollywood just to decimate the remaining 36. With Hollywood thriving in comparison to France's film studios, the country was soon just inundated with American movies. By the 1950s, the French would be addicted to all things American and didn't really care about how their own film market was doing. The government did make attempts to fix this, like in 1948, introducing a tax on each cinema ticket to support the industry. Didn't really help much. And later, the Minister of Culture, André Malraux, raised the level of financial aid available to filmmakers. To this day, in fact, French cinema remains heavily dependent on state-supported funding. But without audience support, French cinema grew pretty stagnant, as there was very little incentive to improve on it. By the mid-1950s, French cinema was basically just copying Hollywood films, and they were doing a good job, but they were just, like, Xeroxing Hollywood films. Their production values were just as high as Hollywood's, but the problem with it is France was always a very, like, artsy market, and now that was all pretty much gone. Also, at this time... In, in the French film industry, and honestly, most film industries, it was the producers, not the directors, that were seen as the arbiters of a film. A director was just another, like, tool, another crewman, one that required a lot of training. At this time, what was required to work as a director in the mainstream French film industry demanded a lot of red tape and specialized education, which meant spending a lot of money and time to achieve this. This included studying and becoming certified by the IDHEC, the country's national Film School, and then after that, just years of apprenticeship. By the time many of these directors were making their debuts within the system, they were already in their 40s and were expected just to churn out the flash while staying within the lines the producers had laid out for them. This was a very sterilized tradition of filmmaking, reducing it to a formulaic process instead of an artistic one to ensure mass appeal. These movies were also mad spendy to make because they were very big and flashy and therefore they needed a lot of people to go see them to make their money back so they needed to play it very, 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 very safe. Frustrated by this lack of artistry in the industry and the lengths it took to become a filmmaker in the first place, a young film critic named Francois Truffaut wrote an article in the film magazine Cahiers du Cinéma called A Certain Trend of French Cinema. In the article, he attacked the current state of French film, called out certain screenwriters and producers and directors for the garbage he believed they were making, and listed several directors and their screenwriters whom he believed were major exporters of this, quote, psychologically realistic film 
films featuring characters and storylines that were staples of the mainstream French film industry. He also named other filmmakers that he thought were capable of revitalizing the authorship of films. Basically, he just went, all of this is crap. We want new stuff. In the article, Truffaut also lamented the loss of the director's personal touch on each film. This way of thinking eventually led to the auteur theory, which considers the director as the painter of a film. The article Truffaut wrote caused a ton of controversy, but also secured him a job writing for a nationally circulated and the more widely read arts letters spectacles. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Like I said, Truffaut, as well as several of the other Cahiers critics, including Jean-Luc Godard, had not trained at the National Film School, but rather at the Cinematheque, where they were educated by two amateur filmmakers named Henry Langlois and André Bazin. The duo had spent years collecting films from all over the world, which provided the Kaye guys with their informal film educations. Langley's goal with showing films from around the world was to teach people to look at the visuals to learn how a story was told instead of what the film was about. Bazin was making a name for himself as an academia-level critic of film, often being published in La Revue du Cinema. That was until the journal's owner died in a car accident and the journal folded shortly thereafter. Bazin then founded a program to allow filmmakers from all over the world to come to his cine club to speak about their art. He and his contemporaries also threw a film festival to go against Cannes as they believed their selections were too, quote, tradition-bound. They called their festival the Festival of Condemned Films, which only took place once, and after that the group had founded the Calle du Cinema, which started publication in April 1951. Bazin didn't know it yet, but doing this made him one of the founding fathers, possibly the founding father, of French New Wave. Truffaut and Godard had been among the founding members of the magazine, which in November 1953 began refusing to review any mainstream French films. Instead, they went out searching for filmmakers who were experimenting with new ways to tell these celluloid stories. In their bones, the Cahiers guys believed that film was an art form and not just a means of entertainment or to make money. This was when they began attacking the mainstream filmmakers, starting with Truffaut's article that we talked about a little bit ago. At this time, Truffaut absolutely abhorred current French film to an almost fanatical level. He was quoted saying that French film was just, quote, 300 continuity shots stuck together 110 times a year. Truffaut continued to write articles, developing his version of auteurship along the way. He eventually said that he believed that there was no such thing as a bad film, merely bad directors. Out of all of this, inevitably, the Kaye boys began plotting a way for them to make their own films. Films that would have to be made for as low as one-tenth what a studio film's budget was. This meant that they couldn't afford all of those super experienced trained dudes or any real established talent. Instead, their films would be shot by and large in practical locations with handheld cameras, using no-name and very often untrained actors. Since these films were cheaper to make, they could be more artistic as they didn't need as many butts in the seats to recoup their costs. They were going to make films that, in Truffaut's words, would, quote, resemble its author and be, quote, an act of love. If you go and watch some French, you wave, and you should if you want if you want to be a well-rounded like person who knows about film, you do need to go watch some French New Wave. Just be warned that they are very pretentious and arduous. You kind of have to look at it more like you would look at like a modern art piece. It's just it's it's gonna be a little bit off-kilter. 
And it's not to say that they're bad films. They're just very, they're just not like what you, like you're not going to sit down and watch a French New Wave film for fun unless you're, you know, a bigger cinema fan than I am because I can't do it. And they just take a lot of focus. You know, if you don't speak French, you're going to be reading subtitles. You know, it's just, it takes all of your focus. It's it's the equivalency of like eating your broccoli when for watching a movie. They are important for historical context. They're not the most fun thing to watch in the world, but just be aware. These films are based basically modern art in motion. Since these films were made outside of the mainstream French system, new wave films relied on portable equipment and required little or no setup for scenes, making the films look more documentary in style than a narrative film of this era typically did. New wave consisted of a combination of realism, subjectivity, and authorial commentary, which basically culminated in a film that would ask far more questions than it would ever answer. You very rarely get a satisfying ending in a French new wave film. The movement was further characterized by its rejection of traditional filmmaking rules in favor of the avant-garde traditions of the 1920s because they loved that shit. New Wave filmmakers explored new approaches to editing, mise-en-scene, and narrative, as well as engagement with the social and political upheavals of the era, often making use of irony and loving them some existential stuff. The biggest shortcoming of many of these is the sound, because it is not good. And this was by and large due to the use of the handheld cameras, which were very, very loud. The film was like through the cameras. So that forced the need for a lot of dubbing and ADR and coupled with the loosey-goosey production planning and just the whole vibe of French New Wave, sound was often all over the place and required a lot of post to fix, which wasn't always done well. The movement fully kicked off in 1959 after Truffaut brought his film The 400 Blows, a film his father-in-law had financed for him, to the 1959 Cannes Film Festival. This happened one year after he'd gotten tossed out of the festival for his criticisms of the 1958 selected films. The 400 Blows is the film about the little kid that ends up in French juvie because he attempts to procure a better life for himself, and that plan just goes spectacularly awry. It's it's that one, if you're vaguely aware of, of French film. It's another one of the ones that's a little bit tedious to watch. It's probably the, like one of the important ones to watch, but, you know, you've been warned. Regardless of all that, the film was incredibly well-received at the festival by critics by and large, and the French New Wave was given its official name shortly after in film journal Cinema 58. Godard would start making films shortly after Truffaut's Triumph at Cannes, and his first film, feature length anyway, was Breathless from 1959. Godard took a very seat-of-his-pants method of storytelling in this first film, often writing the day script while eating breakfast. Many way films, even now, pretty much owe their popularity in no small part due to the young theater goers of the era whose ideology most closely resembled these new films. It's not unlike New Hollywood. FYI, just if if you're bouncing around learning about this stuff in more detail, the modern usage of the term French New Wave, like today, pertains mostly just to like Truffaut and the Cahiers guys. But back in its heyday, like when it was actually happening, it covered about 200 filmmakers, many of whom were making their first film at this time. All things come to an end, and by the early to mid-60s, the sun was setting on French New Wave. It got to the point that there were so many new filmmakers flooding this indie market that Truffaut began complaining about the inexperience of the filmmakers who were sullying the New Wave's good name, though he still liked all of those films better than anything Hollywood was putting out at the time. The quality of these pictures had gone down so much so that by 1962, and they were so varied in tone, that critics became a little more hostile towards this movement, at least that's what Truffaut believed. 
While several of his Kaye buddies had moved on to the mainstream world, or which we'll talk about a little bit in a second, or they just quit making films altogether, Truffaut and Godard continued to make their experimental, new wavy films, despite the fact that those films were being buried by the market influx. It would become harder and harder for their films to find audiences, and Truffaut's like last major film was like 1962's Jules and Jim. That was like his last major new wave film. By 1968, 90% of the country's box office was back in the mainstream studio's pockets. Despite its short life, only like five-ish years, the French New Wave is often considered one of the most, if not the most influential movement in the history of all cinema. As the new wave thrived, France's mainstream cinema also underwent a bit of a facelift in the 1960s, partly because of the need to compete with television, and in no small part due to the changing trends happening in American cinema thanks to their new Hollywood movement. French attendance at the cinema was dropping steadily, leading producers to question the financial viability of a big studio film at this point. Clearly they were running out of steam, and they were running out of people to recoup those costs. In response to this... Two genres that were cheaper to make became particularly prevalent and would remain so for the next 20 years in France. That would be comedies and thrillers, which rose in popularity at this time. In fact, France would also be the originator of the heist film, thanks to blacklisted American filmmaker Jules Dassin's 1955 film Rafifi. The 1970s also saw the rise of the film policier, or police film, which are basically crime dramas. The films drew heavily on the noir genre that had been popular in mainstream French cinema since the 1950s. Film also became heavily politicized around this time, as many filmmakers wanted to comment on the scandals just running rampant in France. This included the 1973 oil crisis, the Barre plans, which were a bunch of crazy strict taxes and policies and dealt with people's money, which, you know, just always puts everyone in a great mood, and just all the overall economic issues that would eventually cause the country to fall into recession in the early 1980s. Out of all of this came the conspiracy thriller or neo-polar, which became one of the most popular genres of the late 1970s in France. This genre fed into the ever-increasing public suspicion of politicians and big business at this time. There's also some more socially conscious ones like the film Michel Klein from 1976, which revealed the truth about the Nazi occupation of France, as well as France's complicity in the Holocaust. Some filmmakers were even, you know, bold enough to broach the taboo subject of the Algerian war that was happening at the time, though those efforts were largely inhibited by the French military and the government, unsurprisingly. You're not going to pay for somebody to talk shit about you, so not a lot they could do there. And throughout all of this, cinema attendance continued to decline throughout the the 1970s, thanks in part to the ever-rising popularity of the television as well as France's struggling economy. By 1988, the French government introduced legislation that severely limited the number of films that could be aired on television in the hopes of getting people back into the theaters. This meant that no films could be shown on the free television channels on Wednesdays, Fridays, or Saturdays. Television would also become one of the main sources for revenue for French cinema out of a necessity for their survival. Cinema audiences reached their lowest point in France in 1992, with just 116 million tickets sold. While hardly any country's best film decade, some memorable filmmakers did come out of the 1980s in France, most notably Luc Besson, you know, Leon the Professional, Fifth Element guy, that guy, who was one of the filmmakers in the Cinema du Luc movement. This movement kicked off with Jean-Jacques Beignet's film Diva in 1981, and these movies were characterized by their slick visuals and overall just favoring style over substance. They also combine quote-unquote high arts, think like opera, with like that of 
of the modern of the day's modern culture. Themes in these films included fatal love affairs, uh, young people who prioritize like their friends over their families, and also like just cynical views of the police. Most of the main characters in these films tended to be younger people. These films were also more influenced by popular genres of the day, as you can probably discern. They were very, very fixated on pop culture, and they also, for the most part, avoided politics. They was something a little bit more like mindless fare. This is also I think when like the 80s blockbusters were kind of becoming a thing in the stateside. So, you know, people wanted a little bit more escapism than anything else. Not everybody liked this. And the term cinema de look was actually coined by a French critic whom called it that negatively. The cinema de look filmmakers were also far more united in a storytelling sense compared to their new wave ancestors. Each had their own storytelling styles, yes, but their like ideations and storytelling methods were a lot closer together, which gave it kind of a continuity to audiences that the new wave never could. This era of filmmaking lasted from about 1980-1981 to about 1994. With increased sources of funding available to filmmakers and an improved economic outlook, French cinema experienced a major revitalization in the 1990s. Reggie Wanier's Indochine from 1992 not only won an Oscar, but it was also a pretty big box office hit as well. France's revitalized industry was once again thanks in part to a new wave of art house filmmakers whom covered social issues of the era. This time was like racism, immigration, youth alienation, and the fragmenting class system in the country. This tend for greater realism and political awareness would carry on into the next decades. Cinema was no longer just an art form and entertainment medium in France. It had become a powerful means of political expression. Some historians call this change, quote, the return to real for French cinema. For the last 20 years or so, French cinema has been very auteur-based. Thanks to modern technology making it easier to make films, a large proportion of movies made in France in the early 2000s were made by first-time directors. This included Jean-Pierre Jeunet's Amélie from 2001, which was not only a big hit in France, it was also a worldwide smash, bringing French cinema a massive amount of attention. If you're too young to kind of remember this, it was very similar to like what happened with Parasite a few years ago when Parasite was making the rounds. It was like that level of like worldwide attention to the French film industry. The biggest worldwide hit of recent memory coming out of France is probably The Artist from 2011, which took home the Best Picture Oscar that year, for better or worse. In fact, that year, French cinema saw its largest theater attendance since 1966. Social and political themes continue to be a major inspiration for the modern auteur directors in France. At the same time, the mainstream cinema continues to provide a counterbalance as it always has with its mass-appealed comedies and thrillers. France is the birthplace of cinema as we know it today. It has experienced extreme highs and even more extreme lows throughout its nearly 130-year history. But somehow... It has always managed to remain a relevant part of cinema history as a whole. From its earliest days to now, the country continues to be a bastion for movie lovers the world over. C'est Amélie. Amélie Poulain. Et elle va changer leur vie. Dis-moi, papa, si tu retrouves une chose de ton enfance à laquelle tu tenais comme un trésor, ça te rendrait comment Il bosse, il risque pas d'être flashé par le radar. Pas vrai Elle se met en quatre pour arranger les cafouillages de la vie des autres. Mais elle, qui va s'en occuper 
And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. The holdy thingy for my microphone is broken, so I need to procure one of those because I'm basically holding this thing together with duct tape and a prayer. So if you can help out, I'd very much appreciate it. There's also Buy Me a Coffee, where you buy me a coffee so I can stay up late and and finish these scripts. I was up until 3 a.m. finishing this guy up last night. So this morning, I am chugging Phil's coffee like it is my job. We've also got merch. Check it out. The link in the show notes. Next week, the very chaotic and very dark history of German cinema. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.